Med Family is a show about a family journeying through medical school with kids and navigating married life. Tag along to see how we got here and where this journey is taking us. Hello, welcome to another week of our podcast, Med Family. I am Eric Acker, the host with Karen. Hey guys. This is your semi-weekly, uh, whenever we have time podcast. That <laughs> like we, we were more regularly yes. up until recent times. <laughs> Uh, so anyone who is waiting on bated breath for any tips and, and information on residency or medical school, <laughs> it's, uh, it's been a rough go of it. But we have had a pretty eventful few weeks. And as of all podcasts, we started it off with thinking, well, with saying that we would like to do this as a quick one, but we will see if we can get through very many of our updates quickly. We'll see. So I guess first and foremost, the most exciting update was uh, the arrival of our daughter. Karen is freshly no longer pregnant. <laughs> um, this is a re-record because the audio quality was terrible. So I made the mistake the first time through just assuming like how things went in the hospital. Uh, I'm just going to go ahead and let Karen take it and <laughs> not, not, not go through that same trap a second time. It wasn't our worst experience. It was not our best Um and I think kind of how things turned out kind of colored our experience differently after the fact. So, I mean, overall, day of, I, I guess I will call it a day because, we, yeah, we got in there around basically midnight. midnight yeah. So, um, all in all, like the triage nurse was great. Um, for the first, it was the first time that Eric was never, was not allowed to go back with me to triage. Um, so that was new. Um, they kicked Eric out for the epidural, which was what Georgia did as well. But in Washington, he was allowed to be there with me. Um, and then we pretty much were left to our own devices <laughs> to just kind of labor until, <laughs> until we were like, uh, and then send the message to the nurse, please, please bring the doctor. I think it's time. Yeah, and then we were told, oh, the doctor will be here in about 20 minutes. And then, Which, you know, it's never that. No. Never true. No. and I 20 was, minutes later, <laughs> he's just leaving. He's going to be here soon. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we had they had started getting the room ready, and I had heard that there was, they had taken our um We had like a nurse. pediatrician yeah. or pediatric nurse that was there. And they had taken her for, she's like, you got beat out by the C-section. So I wasn't sure if my doctor was doing the C-section and that's why they were telling me 20 minutes or if something else. But needless to say, I was like, well, we're not going to last 20 minutes. So you need to get somebody else in here, whether that be the midwife that came and checked on me earlier or my doctor. And they're like, oh no, he's coming. So. Karen doesn't say anything like that. She just looks like, I think <laughs> I need someone. I think it's time. <laughs> like It's very gentle, but like you definitely get the impression that it's time to push. It's time to deliver a baby. And <laughs> one push, push and a half later, yeah. the baby came out. Um, the doctor did make it into the The doctor room. rolled in um, just in time to catch the baby or get set up, you know, and catch the baby. And then um, the placenta was delivered in like two seconds. Um, I don't think you even had to do no. anything. That just kind of came out. 
And so since the placenta was out, we cut the cord right away. There's no reason to not cut the cord. Um, baby did was doing great. Um, I think there was just some question about like whether she got all the fluid out of her lungs because she made a bunch of weird noises and a little bit of extra work of breathing. But they checked her out in the nursery. That was this is also the first time um, that the baby has left our room. Um, um, no, in Georgia they took the baby away for a lot of the tests, which I didn't particularly love. Yeah. Um, but um, they did take um, her for observation because of her breathing. And then, um, which is that was like maybe an hour or two. Yeah, a couple it hours. It wasn't that long, but it still was like this is weird. <laughs> yeah, and they did do some of the tests while they were having her under observation. Um, they did the hearing test at like four in the morning, which was weird to me. Um, but I mean, that's fine. Um, <laughs> it allowed us to get out of there earlier. Um, and then. I don't know. Over, overall, I felt like most of the staff was great, um, but we had to talk our way out to be discharged. Yeah, they wanted to keep us another day, and I was just like, I, I want to go like home. To keep her, <laughs> like, even though she got the full doses of antibiotics for the group uh, group B strap, like and we got all the antibiotics we needed for that. He said, "Oh, we'd like to kind of keep him for this long," and we're like, "Well, we would like to go home," uh, and so we compromised and basically left the evening on the. Third day? I suppose, Second. I suppose, second day? Okay. We only stayed one night. I guess. It just feels like, because like when we came in, it was like, yeah. we were up until until basically delivered. I guess I, I might have taken a nap, but yeah, I'm, I'm the worst. No, you're not. <laughs> um, Coming off of a pulmonology rotation and sleeping and, <laughs> and not, not having the CPAP, but I'm, I'm guessing I snored quite a bit and... Uh, I'm sorry. The worst worst person to have with you. <laughs> but um, yeah, so overall it was, I mean, it went smoothly. I think the only, the only reason why we are looking back on it with a little bit of meh, meh was I've had retained placenta before and we had mentioned it several times. I had mentioned it in my OB office and we had mentioned it at triage and it had... It, the information was very obviously transmis- transmitted to our, our to provider. your doctor. Yes, <laughs> and uh, it was uh, dismissed. Well, well, it, 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 it was acknowledged, but then I think with a lot of doctors, we we fall into this tendency to think that we're really good, and everyone else is kind of subpar. Uh, I don't know. I mean, at some point you get to that point, and especially I think in surgeons, you kind of have to have that mentality in order to function well. I don't know. Maybe, maybe I mean, I could be wrong. I'm not a surgeon, but and I'm kind of lumping OBs into the surgeon category because a lot of OBs are surgeons. I mean, they are surgeons in a sense, um, not in the same way as like a general surgery is a surgeon, but they so they do operations and they all that fun stuff. But anyway, he took the information. And looked at the placenta, and knowing, like, hey, like, three other times had retained placenta, the last time someone actually went in and dealt with it at the time, even though the placenta looked fine, like, he was like, no, I did a great, great job, everything looks good, I'm an expert, I know, I mean, he didn't say this, but this is, I think, just the kind of the thought process of a lot of doctors is, 
I did. Every, I checked all the boxes correctly. My medical knowledge tells me this is perfect. This is or just this is what it should look like. Move on, <laughs> and you kind of ignore you ignore your patient a little bit to a degree. Oh well, that you know, that was then doesn't happen now. But and I don't know. I don't know any statistics on retained placenta. Why that happens? Why yours seems to happen all the time? Why <laughs> your placenta has come out looking normal, but you still have big chunks of it left, like. Probably a great case case report, to be honest, but no, <laughs> I don't think I don't think we have a lot of good information. Um, but I think sometimes by not, I guess, being aware of that, you miss things. But again, we we as doctors deal with a lot of patients who say things that don't make a lot of sense to you, and so you just kind of shrug it off and be like, yeah, whatever. Um, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. I'm just saying that's kind of that's part of the human situation. Yeah. Um, like, I don't know, so that doesn't make sense or whatever, and we just kind of move past it. Um, but in any case, that was kind of a frustrating thing is she had retained placenta again, and it just kind of made the, the recovery process a little bit more difficult, um, dealt with, and there's other critiques as well about how you should do physical exams in the office. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, um, so... I mean, it it is what it is. I, and everyone, least... I think everyone meant well. I just, you know, it just didn't turn out the way we feel like it could have. Yeah, it could have been better, but I did get the care that I needed. So. And we have a healthy baby. You're healthy. You haven't had any extra procedures or anything like that. So I guess that's all good. Yeah. So healthy baby. I, I did take a week. So I, I cut my pulmonology rotation short. You know, was there for the delivery, took the next week off. Um, so now I am back in clinic, uh, which is only basically half days at this point. We we don't have our typical morning educations. I'm now in the afternoon block, but we would typically have the morning education stuff like uh, procedures, point of care, ultrasound, sim lab, etc. But this week um, they are not quite up and running for that, so. Uh, we just basically have half day clinics, and which is nice. It's uh, as interns, we start off with three patients a day, um, but about halfway through, so back around Christmas time, we bumped up to six patients a day. Uh, that's our max. So um, it's only been a handful of days I've gotten up to six, but due to some administrative issues, I didn't have anybody on my schedule this week, so I'm getting a whole bunch of patients kind of dropped on my schedule. Uh, day before and whatnot so that's been fun um, but having a half day allows me to be home <laughs> at least part part of the day longer and that's kind of nice um, so and then of course Karen's mom is here and that's been uh, a big blessing as well help out with the kids and whatnot because now it's up to six and Karen is feeding the baby and trying to wrangle others so it's always nice to have a little extra help around the house yes especially with uh schoolwork so we've gotten a pretty good schedule going and so hopefully i can maintain after she goes home yeah and most of the the kids resistance is slowly breaking down there has been a <laughs> there's been little revolts um that have been been slowly being put out about like tv time and game time and i think the more we have the routine the better they tend to do and yeah today we made it all day without any tv yeah so 
progress. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, and then it also allows us to do other appointments. So we have one of our kids has speech therapy, physical therapy, and so we're doing all that. And uh, having the extra help at home means that we don't have to hire a babysitter. <laughs> I was uh, able to go to my extra doctor's appointments, yeah. and we were able to get uh, the baby's tongue tied yeah. taken care of as and, well. So. I mean, obviously things will change. Like, you know, Karen's mom will go home. <laughs> yes. As much as it's nice to have her around, she will eventually go home. I'm sure at some point she'll want to, she'll want to go home. <laughs> I'm sure we're not the calming, the most calm house to be in. But um, it's been nice to have her here. And then my mom will come in about a month or so. So we're, we'll have a little bit of help, which is nice. Um, I'm basically uh, talking myself into this is great. Uh, the fact that I'm not taking an entire month off is fine, <laughs> but um, kind of going clinic f- this week, and then I'll have two weeks of floors, which is going to be a little bit rougher because then Karen's not going to have any help. I'll be in on the floors for basically six days a week, uh, and then I will be on radiology for two weeks so radiology is a pretty usually a pretty light schedule so hopefully back home helping out more (laughs) and uh before we kind of dive into more of our more difficult weeks i think after that it's like again this clinic and i think i do uh cardiology and then i think i do nights uh yeah nights clinic no i think i think that that's my vacation and then i go like floors critical care critical care <laughs> so like i have a lot of uh heavier things towards the end of my rotation um as we get closer and closer to becoming a pgy2 so we and, and i don't know i'm trying to learn the art of sitting back and pay, are you are you commenting on that boom sound yes that's the military base i've okay. been doing it all day <laughs> Uh, sorry. I didn't hear it. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if it would be picked up in the microphones, but every now and then you hear this low rumble, uh, very brief, and it's the military base nearby, and they must be doing artillery drills or something like that because... Well, that makes me feel better. I was thinking somebody had fallen out of bed or something. <laughs> no, no, it's been going on. It's been going on all day. Um, when I left the clinic, I was hearing it, so... Yeah, normal. Sorry. Um, yeah, so as a PGY1, I'm just trying to learn to go with the flow, kind of observe, learn, and trying to build confidence. I don't know how great that is. I still feel like I know next to nothing. I feel like I know next to nothing, and I'm trying to treat patients. Um, so it's very frustrating. I definitely still want to be a cardiologist <laughs> and go specialize a little bit because um, I want to know something about something. And I don't know. Um, clinic has not been particularly fun in that regard, but... I started day one, no patients on my schedule, picked up, I think, two patients uh, to help my fellow residents out, and that wasn't too bad. Today, I had, like, four patients on my schedule, and I picked up another one from a fellow resident because he needed help, and that that was the first patient of the day, and it sent me back an hour and a half, <laughs> so I spent the rest of the afternoon very busy, um, so clinic is busy. Uh I'm trying to think of what else here is. I mean, there's been obviously a lot of things going on. I, I kind of, 
I, I miss the pulmonology rotation a bit because I, I, I was hoping to do a thoracentesis and there's not going to be as many opportunities to do that. I think critical care, there's going to be opportunities. There's going to be opportunities probably in second year as well. So Yeah, unfortunately, I went into labor the night before you, the procedure was going to be done. You weren't going to be doing the procedure, no, I, but you would have at least else. been able to observe. Um, but Yeah, it, I mean, it, it, it is I was in the spot I needed to be, so... And it's all it's all well and good. Um, the hospital, the, the facility, the GME was very receptive to the whole thing. They didn't make a big deal of me being off. Um, I mean, I, I was in constant communication with them ahead of time, so uh, the time off and everything worked out just fine. Um, so we'll see. Uh, let's see what other things has happened. Uh, I passed step three. That, yes. that was announced. I'm not sure if that was on the last podcast or not, but I did get a pass, so I am very average. Uh, <laughs> um, he, he continues to say that, and he continues to say that he doesn't feel like he knows everything, but he did well I don't, on his I don't know who are these people who know things, like who've, who have the confidence. Like, Are they just faking it? Are they really yes. good at faking it? Everybody's faking it. <laughs> you fake it until you make it. Oh my gosh! In everything that you do, <laughs> you just—I just want to be like that. Like get like a a weird constellation of symptoms and be like, I know exactly what we're doing and what's like. <laughs> not be like, I have no idea. I, I don't know. Anyway, <laughs> um, I. Let's see. So during the pulmonology rotation, let's see. I have the cure symposium coming up. Uh, that's we worked on a, a case report with another resident, and we are presenting that at the Cure Symposium. I don't think we're winning any awards, but it is checking the box for research. research. <laughs> and then during the hormonology rotation, I did pick up another research project, uh, another case report um, with another uh, resident. Uh, we are, I think, fine tuning that case report. We're at, we're going to try to submit that one to publications so we'll see how that goes that will be two um and then of course i'm in the research um i'm in the research group interest group and we're doing uh, a, a larger study like project there's a lot of people on the project so i'm not sure how much my name will be yeah like i'm not going to be the I'm probably not going to be the second or third author uh, definitely not going to be the first author um so i don't know how well, that's going to fit on my resume, but it will be something other than a case report, so that's nice. Um, let's see what else here. I did have another one that I picked up, a case report that I was, I picked them up when I started neurology, so like my first rotation. And I think the lesson here is is when you pick up a case report, try to do it quickly and or make sure that people know that you're going to do it because uh, I had a I was working on it. I was writing up stuff. And they were, I had a question about the diagnosis and making sure everything was clear so I knew that my literature review was extensive enough. And so I messaged the neurologist about it, and he was like, oh, no, someone already did the case report. So he had given it to two medical students, and they did it like a month ago. And so it's like, well, I spent a lot of time not doing something that I didn't need to do. So... Um, Lesson there is once you have something, make sure everyone knows you have it and then do it. Uh, yeah, it is what it is. Um, but I do wonder, I need to talk to the other case support I had. I mentioned that I got in pulmonology. I need to talk to the resident there and make sure like 
he submits it sooner than later because we vaguely remember talking to the patient, getting consent, and her mentioning that someone else had already come through, getting a consent for a similar case report question. So it's like maybe we need to publish first. Um, (laughs) In any case, (laughs) uh, that's that. I'm I'm trying to do things that will boost... um, a fellowship application. Um, we, we went over that a little bit, I think, before we took a hiatus. But um, research uh, case reports are, I think, it's good to have a, a few on your resume, better than one. <laughs> yes. uh, so, and obviously, case reports are kind of the lowest level. They're the easiest ones to do, the lower hanging fruit. Um, if you can do um, case series or anything like that, it's usually better. Or... Um, uh, let's see, case or any sort of um, publication, uh, any other publication, any actual research quality improvement kind of variations um, are good too because they show a lot more work and a lot more diligence to get those things done. So that would be my recommendation. <laughs> uh, again, if you're looking to do a fellowship, it, fellowships I think are competitive currently and they're probably only going to get more competitive as you go along. Uh, other things I've I kind of I, the the week off I'm sure Karen will attest to is I'm not I'm not the easiest person to just sit around and he does not sit around he can't um, this is why I didn't uh, opt to take multiple weeks off this is one of the reasons why I didn't opt to take multiple weeks off because I knew I would probably eventually become more and more annoying but he got a lot of uh, little projects done around the house as well as working on. Um, some stuff for um, residency. So, all in all, I think you did pretty good. Yeah, I, just, I started to kind of develop kind of a plan. I was adapting some of the information I got from Dr. Bradley, who was, he's the guy who matched, he's one of the residents that matched into cardiology uh, yeah, out in Colorado next year. And he had made a suggestion about like a, a whiteboard in your room with dates or a calendar so you and with goals written out that you can kind of follow and you can look at at a glance and know what you need to do when you need to do it and uh, I haven't adapted all of that obviously some of his suggestions were find like um, the ACC or American College of Cardiology conferences and make sure you know when things need to be submitted when they are so you can make sure you have something ready to go i don't currently have any cases for cardiology so i haven't really devoted much time into looking up their dates i probably should it would be good but other things i was thinking about was uh to be a better resident (laughs) so the there are some programs i think and i don't know this is based off of my limited experiences that I'm sure that there are some programs out there that are very heavy on the education and maybe less on the patient care side of things or the service. I think they call it service, like patient education and service. Um, I think my program is probably a good mix of both. You get a little bit of education, you get a little bit of service, maybe a little bit more service than education. But um, if you just do the bare minimum, you just show didactics and you just do the service, so the floors, the electives, the rotations, uh, I, I am, imagine you will probably get through residency just fine. Um, but I think 
obviously at the end of it, you need to be ready to be board certified. And um, I've been looking at kind of some other residents. So other people who graduated residencies, if you just go to, uh, if you want to work as a hospitalist, then uh, depending on the hospital you work at and their rules, they might give you like a six month grace window to study for the board and take the board for um, internal medicine. And then once you take the board, you can you be a full-fledged internal medicine board-certified doctor. And then uh, other places like the fellowships, the fellowships like you to basically almost immediately take the board. <laughs> and they want you to basically be board-certified by the time you start their fellowships, depending on, I think, depending on the fellowships. So if you do the bare minimum, you may not be ready for the boards. And so I kind of tend to look at it and go, okay, I I just had my ITE exam. And that's another component of this whole thing is like we take our annual ITE exams. Obviously, the first year they were like, don't study for it. Just just take it. (laughs) And I did okay. Um, I did, again, average. And obviously, if I basically don't study and I do the same score next year, I will definitely not be average. And so being middle of the pack is great. But it would be better if I was ahead of the pack <laughs> next year and then the year after. That way I'm in a good spot that I can um, feel confident leaving residency and take my board exams. Uh, that would be my, I guess, again, thought process. Uh, so in response to that, uh, we have MixApp. That's our kind of question bank educational tool. They got text, they got learning material, they have question banks. And so I've been trying to do, uh, and the way MixApp, MixApp can incorporate the ITE exam that you just took and what you scored and kind of give you a suggested <laughs> reading material questions that you should do. And so I've been trying to make a plan of, I'm going to get through these topics. I'm going to get through these topics. I'm going to get through these topics uh, and kind of progressively work through it. So I'm constantly learning. Obviously on top of everything else, my residency has put on me. So we are currently on, I think we were uh, on infectious disease this month. So we're getting assigned infectious disease questions we have to do. It was At first, it was like 10 questions a month. It's basically nothing. It's, I think, moved up to 10 questions a week. Uh, again, not very much. <laughs> Pretty doable, honestly. Uh, obviously, on busier weeks, it might be more challenging. But So I'm, I'm still trying to keep up with the residency requirements, which... Again, not very much right now, plus the, you know our weekly didactics, plus our weekly morning reports. And then I am trying to incorporate um, a few different facts. So I'm doing my own study plan on MixApp. I am also trying to do uh, a few educational things. And so one is cardiology. I want to stay as up-to-date on cardiology and be as good as cardiology as I can be because that's where I would like to end up. So, and I will have a cardiology rotation in a few weeks. <laughs> so I want to actually be good at it and impress so that they can go, oh, PGY1, actually decent for a PGY1. I don't expect to be a PGY2 level, but um, I want to be good at it so that I will at least impress the, the fellows in our program. I would ideally probably want to go to a program that has EP latched onto it, but 
baby steps. So, um, so for that, I do. I've been doing. I have a few access to a few resources where it's like EKG Academy, where I kind of le- go back in and look at something on the EKG just to get better at reading the EKGs. And then, additionally, um, point up here ultrasound with echoes like TTEs and how to read them. Um, so it's. You can read a report. Anyone can read a report, but obviously, it's the fellows, it's the the cardiologists who are writing the reports. And so, being a doctor, you can look at the images and the videos taken on the ultrasounds. So I'm trying to get better at looking at them, identifying at these landmarks on the ultrasounds, and then understanding at least ejection fraction. That was one of my goals this week was to understand. How to possibly approximate ejection fraction based off of the imaging from like I think it was like the parasternal short uh, long axis, and then looking at the parasternal short axis and other stuff like that. So I'm trying to do that, and then on top of that for cardiology, and is I ha- I found a podcast that I don't find objectionable. It's like it's called This Week in Cardiology. I believe it's put on by Medscape. It's it's a little bit higher level than I'm really comfortable with. It's a little definitely heavy on studies, um, but this is a cardiologist. I forget his name, but he basically presents new studies that have coming out and discusses new technologies, new things passing FDA approval, and then kind of gives his t- take on certain things. So you kind of get an idea of some new things that are coming out. So you're not just relying on whatever's in MixApp, whatever you read that was maybe five years old. Um, so one of the things I, I even will just, I just touch on briefly is that they talked about um, left appendage closure, um, which uh, I don't think anyone, <laughs> it's hard to, to perfectly describe, but essentially if you have AFib and uh, in your left atrial appendage, uh, left atria, you have an appendage and the appendage is kind of thought to be the culprit for clot formation in patients who have atrial fibrillation. And generally speaking, if you had the right clinical risk factors, you put patients on anticoag and rate control, and you leave them on that. And that's generally thought to basically prevent clot formation and strokes, lowering your stroke risk, or your CHADVASC, if you will. Um, CHADVASC is the score you use to <laughs> approximate whether somebody needs to be on anticoag. But there's patients, obviously who cannot be on anticoag because they have GI bleeds uh, and other reasons they don't tolerate anticoagulation. So what do you do for those patients who have atrial fibrillation and they can't tolerate anticoag? Um, This is where the left appendage closure has been a procedure that's been, patients have been directed towards. And in any case, uh, in this podcast, he's mentioned a few study, uh, at least a study, that is pointing to, they were looking at the closures, because right now they're done percutaneously, so just like you would do like a right heart cath, you'd go in and you would put what's uh, called a watchman, proce- a watchman, it's a watchman procedure, so it's kind of like a, I don't know, it looks like, to me, it always feels like it's like a mesh <laughs> cage that comes in and kind of form fits the appendage. Now, the appendage, unfortunately, is not all the same size in every patient, so whether that cage perfectly fits in there and really blocks the blood flow in and out of that area and causes, quote, unquote, closure 
is what was the subject of, the, of these studies. Uh, and essentially, they noted that for percutaneous left appendage closure, uh, up to, I think they said, twenty around 25% showed signs of leaking. So there was leakage of blood through the closure, and they found that, that it could be associated with increased risk of cardiovascular <laughs> accidents. So... Um, there's, of course, the big question mark is, do left atrial appendage closures really reduce the risk of CVAs? Um, so I'm sure that's something that we will be hearing more about and looking more into. Um, it's obviously one of those things are, as in doctors are trying to help prevent one problem and avoid and minimize the risk of others. And maybe this therapy that we thought was working is not going to be a great idea anymore. So... <laughs> Anyway, so I'm trying to stay up on cardiology news and, and new treatments and what's going on there. So I tried to do a little bit of that. Um, and that's just a, it's like a 20-minute podcast. It's once a week, so it's pretty, obtain- pretty manageable. And then the last thing I try to do <laughs> for cardiology is studies and trials actually reading the studies and trials and it's very frustrating because reading some of these studies are are hard and dry um so i'm not trying to kill myself all at once and there's a lot so like we have the timmy score uh which is i believe like a risk um based off cardiovascular risk factors likelihood of someone having like an enstemi or unstable angina and having adverse like multi like Basically, cardiovascular risk factors and present in, in someone with uh, unstable angina or NSTEMI and their chances of having uh, a like a mortality and other all time you know, all cause mortality either stuff like that. Uh, we use the Timmy score all the time. It's one of those things you use. You probably should use in the ED or <laughs> ED should definitely use it. Like elevated troponin, um, angina like chest pain but no st elevation like i want to call the cardiologist you should tell the cardiologist what the timmy score is because that is going to probably push the cardiologist into whether we are just putting the patient on heparin and watching them or if we're moving this patient to the cath lab and how quickly we're doing that so the timmy score is a nice score i mean obviously the cardiologist will consult and they will probably calculate it themselves but if you're consulting them and they call you up, like, why do you, why are you calling me at 2 a.m.? <laughs> what do you want me to do? And you can be like, oh, the Timmy score is six. And this is what, you know, the proponents are this, this and this. And um, the higher, I believe the higher the score, the more likely the patient has for an adverse cardiac event or adverse event. So Timmy trial is one I've been trying to read up on. It's a big, big one. There's other ones as well. Um, so I'm trying to get through at least a few of them a month so that if I am asked in the future, I know what the trials were. I mean, all these trials are things like why we why we do ACEs now, why ACEs are such a big deal, why ARBs are a big deal, why, why do we think beta blockers are great for patients with... Uh, heart failure, all all these things. So I'm trying to learn more about the trials. It's good to know the rules, obviously, but sometimes it's good to know the underlying trials so that you can tell your patients a little bit more of like what the actual risk factors are, what your 
preventing. Um, and then you can also use that knowledge to when you talk to your patients about, you know, whether, you know, if you're just reducing an all-cause mortality risk of 2% in your 95-year-old patient, well, then maybe you don't want to do that. <laughs> um, other trials like the, there was a new trial I think that came out as well, is the biventricular pacing uh, for patients who have, I believe patients who have, like, I think it's left bundle branch block. And I believe they had heart failure on top of it, like heart failure, bundle branch block. Uh, you had to have the wide complex um, uh, QRSs. In any case, um, these they found that the biventricular pacemakers are great for the they they reduce mortality in a lot of these patients. Now they did this study on like seven patients who like the medium age was like seventy years old, and they went out like. 14 years and like the the mortality rate was like 78 percent like yeah but the medium age of survival in this age you know, in men and women is like 75 80 years old so like yeah your mortality rate is going to be pretty high in that population just in general um but they did find like the biventricular pacemaker did reduce all-cause mortality in these patients and cardiovascular mortality in these patients so it was a good thing um but other thing that kind of comes out of that is you can use a biventricular pacer with a defibrillator or an, what's called an ICD. Um, I believe it's, I forget the name off the top of my head, but in any case, you can use a pacemaker or uh, just the pacemaker, or you can use one with the defibrillator. The reason why I bring that up is, it's, again, that goes to highlight if you have a 90 plus year old patient, um, Maybe you don't want to use the defibrillator because maybe they're like, well, I'm happy to prolong my life with this biventricular pacer, but I would rather not have to be shocked. <laughs> like if my heart is going to stop, let it stop. So anyway, learning some of these trials, that's kind of one thing. And then the last thing I'm doing for at least a broad educational is I'm trying to listen to another podcast, EM Crit. And it's basically emergency medicine and critical care doctors that talk about their stuff. And I, I tend to listen to them because, well, I'm, a, I'm right now in internal medicine. We do a lot of critical care. We do a lot of <laughs> basically critical care or critical care light. Uh, it's another word I would use. Like I used, I've been a lot on step downs and I'll do an ICU rotation. I, it's like my last rotation. So I don't want to suck. <laughs> I mean, I feel like the attendings would be very forgiving of a resident, an intern who is on week one studying in critical care ICU and not being very good at it versus someone who is uh, 11 months in <laughs> and then going to critical care and then not being very good at it. And they're like, wow, you're going to be a PGY2 next, next month. Awesome. Uh, so I don't want to suck. And so I do want to look up critical care stuff. Um, and I think even that is, is eye opening to read some of the, listen to the stuff that they talk about and some of the study, they talk about studies as well. Um, again, it's evidence-based medicine, understanding the studies, the limitations of the studies, um, because, uh, you know, there's always studies are built in a certain way to get a certain result or try to obtain a certain result. And so they build them in ways to avoid confounders that would would make you 
not being unsure of what the result is. And so like one study in particular that kind of caught my attention was the shock IVC or the shock inferior vena cava study um, done at a tertiary center looking at uh, shock patients, sepsis, sepsis patients who have, it's I think it's called sepsis-induced, um, oh gosh, why am I, <laughs> it's uh, t- uh Sepsis-induced tissue hypoperfusion, SITH, I think is the acronym they like to use. And they basically compared fluid resuscitation. So a patient comes in with sepsis, general rule of thumb right now is 30 milliliters per kilogram of the patient uh, in fluids. So you you calculate that out, and that's how much fluid you're going to bolus. Uh, I believe that's per hour um, for three, three to six hours, and you recheck the lactate level. Um, you're monitoring the blood pressure, etc. That's the standard right now. They were checking to see, well, instead of the 30 milliliters per kilogram, what if you use the ultrasound, point of care ultrasound, to look at the IVC and the collapsibility and the, sens- the sensibility of these of the IVC and govern- using that to govern how much fluid to bolus. Because oftentimes in the hospital you'll find critical care doc, so any doctor who has an ultrasound handy will slap that thing onto the abdomen and look at the IVC and decide, oh, the IVC is collapsing, the patient needs more fluids. And so they use a lot of times the ultrasound to govern whether the patient needs more fluids or not. And in this study, it essentially showed more all-cause mortality was essentially the same. It was like 19.8% and 18.8%. Um, for the ultrasound-guided therapy versus the normal therapy. And so basically not a difference. If anything, the ultrasound-guided therapy gave less fluid. And But the study was built in a particular way. Only patients who had infectious diseases, uh, infectious underlying cause of sepsis. Uh, obviously, nobody with heart failure was allowed into the study and uh, there was a lot of other exclusion criteria so something to kind of keep in mind when looking at studies but anyway I'm trying to Karen's like falling asleep here I'm sure half the audience is as well no (laughs) I tease her but I know she's tired because the the kids wake up at all hours and she's up in any case um, I'm trying to do a bunch of different things to try to continue the education i i will i my goal is to maybe share a little bit of it i don't want to become one of the other podcasts they do it very well you can just go to them but i do want to at least touch on some of the things and kind of go from there i'm trying to again broaden the knowledge obviously a program in residency is going to teach you quite a bit and uh a lot of programs want you know want to be more academic, and so they try to be te- you know, staying up on the academics. They try to look at things. A lot of programs have journal club and other things like that. So I'm not saying that programs can't do this stuff. I'm just saying it's always good to take it upon yourself to help push your education further. Um, and then you can take that knowledge and figure out how you can apply it and where you can apply it. Uh, like. And maybe you can't supply it. That's the other. Because um, there's going to be some attendings who look at you and go, no, I base my fluid resuscitation based off of the ultrasound. And you can point to a study and go, well, maybe that's not the best idea. Like maybe you should only use the IVC 
point of care ultrasound to assess congestion and not just fluid level. Uh, but again, I need to do more research on it as well. So sometimes you are going to be at the mercy of what your attending <laughs> is used to doing or prefers to do or thinks is best. And always realizing that you are learning and you are the intern and you are going to keep learning. And, you know, eventually you're going to be the attending and you get to do things at that point your way. Um, it's a weird balance because as residents, we are doctors, we have a license, we have a training license. Um, and oftentimes we are looked at and said, well, you're the doctor, make the decision and do it. And then at the half the time it's, well, your attending says to do X, Y, and Z. So you're going to do X, Y, and Z because you're working underneath their license. So it's a give and take <laughs> and, and, and it should be, it should be that way. I'm not trying to say it should be one way or the other. Uh, cause at some point you are going to work on your own under, not under anyone else. And so it's good to learn how to be autonomous, but it's also nice, especially in first year to have a little bit more guidance. <laughs> so, um, you know, good and bad, uh, uh, generally good, but Anyway, Karen is falling asleep. I should probably wrap this up, eh? Yeah. <laughs> You're going Canadian on me? Yeah. yeah. We have enough Canadian friends. <laughs> but I hope you all had a good few weeks, and we will be back next week. Um, we'll talk more about Eric's um, clinic week as well as um, he'll be starting floors. So Yes. And not eat south. Not eat south. I'm on a uh, three south, so I'm on a different. But I have a, a pretty decent set of seniors on that floor, so I, it should be good. We'll yeah. see. We'll see. Anyway, have a good week, guys. And you want to follow the podcast on uh, Med Family MD on Instagram. If you have any questions or requests, and if I said something wrong, just let us know. Uh, happy to make corrections. And then, of course, you can subscribe to the podcast on any of the major podcasting platforms. You guys have a great week. Bye.